We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1. If you'll open your Bibles there, we're going to continue in our study through the book of Malachi. And um, we'll finish chapter 1 today. Last week we uh, began looking at God's word to the nation of Israel through the prophet Malachi. Uh, Malachi means uh, my messenger. And uh, what's happening in Malachi is that God's giving his message to a people who are unraveling. Uh, The people uh, of Malachi's day, the nation of Israel, about 50,000 strong at this point who have uh, come out of uh, bondage in, uh, in Babylon... Well, they're unraveling spiritually, they're unraveling religiously because they'd lost respect and reverence uh, for God. And they're unraveling socially because they become just like the nations around them. We looked at this last week. Uh, We saw that God begins the message where he's going to rebuke and to reprove uh, these these wayward Israelites. And he begins the, the, the message in his word of encouragement and instruction to them. Um, with just that, a word of encouragement of his love. We, we looked at the fact that God approaches and he begins the thing. He's, he's bringing a bell, but, you know, like a good father, he, he doesn't just, you know, smack the kid. He comes to him and he says, look, now, first thing you got to know is I love you. And what we read there is he says, I have loved you. And that, the way that's written, it's not just I have in the past. It's I have, I do, and I will love you. Again, we looked at that last week. If you missed it, make sure uh, to listen to the message uh, online and, and, uh, and get caught up there. But today, um, God's continuing with his message for his wayward children, <clears throat> and he, his message really is, look, I have loved you, but uh, you've despised me. And uh, really, the big idea of the message today is that despite God's love for his people, his people, as evidenced by their sacrifices that they're offering to him, uh, they're demonstrating that they, in fact, despise him. And uh, a question to consider, sort of the entry question for you to sort of jot down, maybe you could write it in the corner of your notes or at the top heading of this section if you're given to taking notes, which I think is, is good and beneficial, you should uh, as a learner. Um, here's the question, do my sacrifices reveal that I truly love God, that I'm loving him with my time, with my talent and my treasure, uh, or do they prove that I despise him? Not my words, not my good intentions, but my actions, what I do. Do those prove that I truly love God? You may recall there was a story back in uh, the late 80s, uh, happened in LA, it was uh, in Beverly Hills, it was a sensational story, it was on all the news outlets, it was tragic, uh, Lyle and Eric Menendez. Uh, and um, these, these guys are evil personified. They, uh, they killed their parents, uh, Jose and Kitty, with a shotgun um, and <clears throat> made a, you know, the, the 911 calls were released and you hear this tearful, you know, son calling and putting on, you know, this big waterworks of, oh my gosh, somebody did this, who would do this kind of thing? And um, universally, people were absolutely appalled and they were outraged and despite the tearful professions of love for their parents by, by uh, Eric and his brother Lyle, what happened was, and the evidence proved, that they had cold-bloodedly 
killed their father and mother with a shotgun. Um, and uh, you get into the details of it, and I will spare you the details of it, but particularly what happened to their mom, tragic, and that woman suffered horrible terror before she died in excruciating pain, knowing that her sons were killing her with a shotgun. It was, it was, it was horrible. Now, <clears throat> again, the evidence proved these guys, they said they loved their parents, but the evidence proved that, that they didn't love their parents. In fact, uh, they, they did it for their money, and their love was for money. Paul said this to the Apostle Timothy. He says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, that's an extreme example, but what we're going to see today is that the priests and the people may confess their love for God, but the evidence proves that what they really loved is money, and, uh, and they despise the Lord. And so we continue, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, God speaking, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am the father... Where's my honor? And, and if I'm a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the temple of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, what he says there in verse 9, he's like, you know, oh, hey, I'm going to entreat God's favor, and I'm going to bring this worthless, lame thing. Yeah, okay, hey, let's entreat God's favor by bringing this this sickly little thing. Oh, hey, let's do that. I'm going to bring this to God. That's what verse 9 is saying. He says, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts, verse 10. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. In other words, he says, look, if somebody did that to you, if somebody was like, oh, hey, you know, I'm glad you're here. I got this, uh, I got this rotten, you know, thing that I want to give you. You'd be like, get out of here, you know, kind of thing. And, and what God is saying is, you know what, if, if that's the way you're going to come to church, if that's the way you're going to come to worship me, just shut the door. Let's not even have church. That's what he's saying here. He's like, what's the, you're going you're gonna to come and you're going to have church and you're going to bring me this, this rotten thing? Let's just, let's just call the whole thing off. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And this word weariness is the same word that Moses used to describe all the hardships 
that the nation of Israel went through when they were wandering in the wilderness. All of the difficulties that they encountered. He uses the same root word here of, of weariness to say all of these trials, all of these travails, all of these these vast hardships that we faced in the wilderness wanderings. And so this is, this is the same thing, the same idea. In other words, what these priests are saying is, you know what, serving, serving God, worshiping, honoring God with my life, and the whole idea of, of being a, a worshiper of God, well, it's just, it, you know, it's just like the travails that we went through in the wilderness. It's all, it's all of this unseemly, difficult, you know, arduous thing. It's just... It's just a burden. It's just a weary. It's just a, oh, it's church? Oh, come on. Man, what a burden. What a drag kind of thing. Galatians 6, 9 tells us, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season uh, we'll reap a harvest if we don't grow, grow faint. And so he says, you know, you also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. In other words, you got, you've got a great perfect sacrifice here to give God, but you're going to keep that for yourself. And you're going to go, you know what? Uh, yeah, that one's taken, but uh, I've got this animal over here that's going to die tomorrow. Here, yeah, you can have that kind of thing. That's the attitude. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, God begins here by telling us two things. He, he tells us two things regarding his character. He says that uh, he's a father and that he's a master. Now, the aspect of being a father, this reveals his affection for us, and the idea of being our master uh, reveals his authority over us. And he asks a question. He says, if I, therefore, am father and master, and it's not a question, it's a statement of fact. I am your father. I am your master. That's the idea. Then where's my honor, says the Lord, and, and where's my reverence? And these go hand in hand, honor and reverence. This is what we are to do. We are to honor God. We are to revere him. We're to honor him. We're to revere him with our time, with our talent, with our treasure. This is how we are to relate to the Lord. Indeed, the idea is I worship God with my whole life. You guys will recall, if you've been coming here for, for a length of time, um, we, we, we changed the way that, that we would receive our tithes and offerings because for so many years, we just stuck the, the tithe boxes in the back. And, and the idea was, you know, people come to churches and, and it's like, you know, you, you feel like the pastor's always beating you over the head and begging for money and, you know, given the idea that God is poor. And we didn't want to give that taste at all to anybody and we strongly believe, hey, where God guides, he provides. He's been our provider. He's always provided for us. And so we're not going to make a big deal about it. But the Lord convicted me, and he convicted me in the idea that, hey, look, this is an act of worship, our giving to God. We're commanded to do this. Indeed, this section of Malachi is entirely what this is about. That we're to worship God, and we're to gladly and, and rejoicingly worship the Lord. 
And there were to the idea of giving to him. Well, yes, Lord, you've given so much to me and I want to give to you and I'm commanded to give to you and, and this is the way you've structured things. And so we changed it and we said, look, we're going to pass the basket. We're going to incorporate it into our worship and it's not so that we can gain more money. It's so that we can learn together and have a regular reminder, look, I'm worshiping God. This is part of my worship. I worship God. Now, worship isn't just the songs that we sing before and after the service. Worship is, is, is how, it's, it, it, it's part of it, certainly. But worship is how I give to the Lord. Worship is how I parent my children. Worship is how I love my wife. Worship is how I work at my job. Worship is how I share the gospel with my neighbor. This is worship. Worship is to be our entire life. And so when God talks about, hey, where's my honor? Where, where's my reverence? He's saying, look, you've compartmentalized your life. And for the most part, you've edged me out. I see where I stand now. You worship you. You worship your wallet. You worship all the stuff that pertains to you. And you give me the leftovers, the rotten, the blind, the sick, the lame. I see how it is. And here's the problem. Malachi's day, he's, God's not being honored this way. And notice in verse 7 what God accuses them of. He says, he says this, he says, You offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? Here's, what, here's the point. By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Now, here's the deal. They never said that verbally. They didn't articulate out loud, oh, the table of the Lord is contemptible. I mean, you wouldn't say that out loud. And there's a lot of things that we as Christians, you'd never say it out loud. But you do it, which says that's really what you believe. That's really what you're thinking. And so here's what's going on. They never said this verbally, but they said it by their actions. And so God gives them now a list of actions. And basically what he says is he said, as he starts telling them, look, here's what you do. He says, look, the people are guilty of offering sacrifices that are blind, that are lame, that are sick. And the priests are guilty in that they're facilitating the whole thing. They're, they're receiving these offerings. They're making these offerings that the people give. The, the priests have the responsibility as the leaders to be able to go, what on earth are you doing? And see, what, what happens here in the priests, the way, part of the way in which they are compensated, and the Lord has set it up this way, that when they would make the offering, they would get to partake of the food that was offered on the altar. And so it was in their best interest to say, hey, listen, whatever, hey, whatever you want to bring in. Now, a sick animal, yeah, they're going to offer that. They're not going to, who wants to eat the meat of a sick animal? But, you know, one that's crippled or one that, that's blind, well, the meat still tastes good. Now, it's, it's a contemptible offering to the Lord. It's a rotten offering to God. But the priest, he's got a selfish motivation in the sense that if he's going to proclaim the, and hold the standard to the people and say, what on earth are you thinking? Don't you dare do that. Well, then what it is at very much risk is that the volume of food that's going to be available to him is going to go down if he holds the people to a higher standard. And so the priest, he's just as guilty as the people because he's willing to compromise. And there are so many pastors today who are willing to compromise. They'll water down the message. Hey, whatever it takes to fill the people up and to get all the people. Hey, God wants to bless you and he wants to bless you and he wants to bless you and let's just not talk about sin and we'll just sweep everything under the rug and I'm not going to look too closely at you and you don't look too closely at me. And you fill a church that way. 
You can, you can fill the, the church's bank account that way. And so, so what God is saying here is, look, the people are guilty. They're offering the blind, the lame, the sick, and the priests. They're guilty because they're looking the other way. And then they're complaining about it, God goes on to say. That's not bad enough. Then you're complaining, oh, my job's so difficult. It's so hard. Please, get over it. Years ago, we, we were doing, you know, several services and, uh, and this is, you know, when I, when I was serving, you know, as an executive pastor at, at Revival, we were doing a, just a bunch of services, and somebody says, oh, gosh, we, we, we can't add another service. Oh, gosh, the poor pastor, he's already preaching, you know, five services or whatever it is. I'm like, please. And we got guys getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, driving and working construction all day, and then driving home, and they do that five days a week, and then they come here on Sunday, and they volunteer on Sunday, and they're serving. I hate the word volunteer. We're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not volunteering. I'm serving Jesus. But this is what they're doing. We, you know, so, so if, if the, the, the pastor's not above the people. Let's just, whatever it takes. If there's work to be done, let's do the work, for crying out loud. You know, you add another service if that's what's needed. He's a big boy, let's just, let, we'll do that kind of thing, you know? And, and so here's the thing, the priests, man, they're facilitating it, and God's not having it. See, here's the deal, in that day they didn't have debit cards, so if you're a father, you can bring, or, or, or a, a farmer, you can bring your, your, your crops to honor God, if you're a herdsman, uh, you, you bring your animals to honor God. And, and here's the deal. In Mosaic law, there's basically three uh, concepts behind the offering of a sacrifice. Um, the first is the aspect of, of sacrificial giving as a, as a loving act of worship. Here's the idea. It, it, the sacrifice, it requires the giving of something that belongs to you. The giving of something that you worked for. The, you know, so, so here's, if you're a herdsman, for instance, you've, you, you've got a, a, a domestic animal. You know, some, an animal that, that, that you've tended, an animal that you've nurtured, an animal that you've invested in, not some wild animal that you haven't nurtured and tendered and invested in, but no, a domestic animal, this is what you would offer. And, and it, you know, it's, it's, you know, this thing that requires sacrifice and you put some work into some thought into, some attention into. The idea is it's a, it's a sacrificial offering as loving worship. Again, you know, a farmer, he offers the food in this way. And, and not only did he work and tend to raise the crops, but a lot of times what they would do is that the offering would be in the form of flour or, of, or in the form of meal. And, and again, which requires more work to prepare. And, and so, you know, the, the idea is similar to a gift today. If, if I give you something, as I get, like it's your birthday or something, and, and I give you, you know, 20 bucks, and I just go, here you go, here's 20 bucks. I mean, okay, great, that's, that's, that, I appreciate it. But, you know, if, if you took that 20 bucks and you actually put some thought and some effort and, you know, you, you give a gift and then you go, wow, what does the gift say? Well, it says, while we were apart, I was thinking of you. That's a gift. And so, so if there's some effort and some thought behind it, you get a gift and you think, how thoughtful. That person thought of me. They considered me. They, they worked to provide for me. And we see this principle in, in, in First Chronicles where David, uh, he erects an altar on the threshing floor of a guy called Ornan, uh, Ornan the Jebusite. Uh, and, and so he... Uh, 
It sounds like a movie title. Ornan the Jebusite, you know, like Conan the Barbarian. Anyway, my, okay, so Ornan the Jebusite, he erects this, this, thresh, this altar on his threshing floor. And when he goes to Ornan to basically say, look, I, I want to buy your altar and I, or your, your threshing floor, and I, I, I want to, you know, buy some oxen to be able to, to make this, this offering. Basically, what the guy says, look, I'll give you the property, I'll give you the oxen, I'll give you the wood for the fire, uh, I'll give you the wheat for, for any, you know, grain offerings you want to make. And David tells him, no, he says, look, I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That's the whole idea here. So this is the first aspect of a sacrificial giving. It's, it's an act of loving worship. Secondly, the concept behind a sacrificial offering to the Lord, it's the aspect of sacrificial substitution. So when you make an offering before the Lord, the idea is, man, I'm going to offer this animal or I'm going to offer this grain as a substitute for my sin. And, and this, you know, is, is what the Jews would do to atone for the sin. They would make this offering, the, the sin requiring the shedding of blood and, and, and all. And of course, this is a looking forward to, and it's the picture of the perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And this is why it's so critically important that they sacrifice something that is perfect and unblemished because it's, it's a representation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when they would offer the, the rotten, the lame, the leftover, the blind, well, it basically, it's, it's an affront to Jesus Christ is what it is. It's a front to the, an affront to the Messiah. And so it's a very serious deal. The third important concept of a sacrifice is that of drawing near to God. Drawing near to God. We see this reflected in Romans 12. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And we've studied this before. That word present literally means to set near. The idea is you take your life, you set it near to God, you take your hands off it. This is a presenting of, God, I give you my life. I present my life to you. And so in this third aspect of, of a sacrifice, it's, it's, just, it's just that it's the drawing near to God. God, I just want to draw near to you. Now imagine, God, I just, I just want to draw near to you. And when I was a kid, you know, we used to like do practical jokes. And one of the practical jokes that we would do is ding dong ditch. You know, well, that didn't have enough juice in it for us. We wanted to up the ante. So what did we do? Well, we took a paper sack and we filled it up with dog poop and we set it on fire, right, on the porch, hoping that the guy would come out and put the fire out, you know, and then get dog poop on his shoe as well. It never worked, uh, but that's what we would do. Now, again, imagine this idea of drawing near to God, and I draw near to God and I go, here's your paper sack there, God, and it's filled with rottenness, and this is the picture. You're like, I get it. Now, what God is saying here is this ain't happening. You're not, you're not drawing near to me to be in fellowship with me. You're not giving a sacrificial substitute offering that is worthy, that is unblemished, that is a representation of the Messiah. You're not giving me a sacrificial offering that is indicative of, of loving worship of me. None of that's happening. Instead, what the people are offering and what the priests are presenting, what they're setting near to God is something that's contemptible. Again, if you're, if you're given to taking notes, you might want to circle that word contemptible. 
Nearby it, here's, uh, here's what you could write. You could write polluted or rotten. That's literally what it means. Again, what's happening, the people are offering blind, diseased, disfigured, polluted offerings. Last week, I was making nachos at my house. Now, when I make nachos, it's, it's a good thing. It's just a work of, of awesomeness, you know? And you take, you take the, and it's good with really sharp cheddar cheese, you know? You put that on there, and maybe, you know, you're, you're feeling, you know, good, and you put some, some uh, the kidney beans on it, and you put, some, you know, salsa on it. Well, I went into the refrigerator, and I grabbed out some sour cream. I'm like, oh, this is going to be perfect. And I opened that thing, and I grabbed the spoon, and I went to dig the spoon down in there. And there was carpet over the top of this sour cream. I mean, it was disgusting. Now, let's say, now what did I do? No, I, sco- I, scooped, the, I scooped the carpet off and I used the sour cream underneath, right? Oh, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Kyle Curry probably would do something like that. I'm not going to do something like that. No, here's what I did. I threw it away. Now, let's say I was having you over to my house, and I made my nachos, and I, and I used up all the good sour cream, and then I pulled that one out, and I went, well, I don't want to share mine. So I just put, well, you know, there's salsa on there, and that's, that's got some green chunks in it. They'll never notice. What if I did that to you and offered that to you? Would you, would you appreciate it? No, you wouldn't. Listen, that's what's happening here. You know, it's this idea of, oh, that's nasty. Throw that away. Oh, no, save it. We'll take it to church. We'll give it to God. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Because we do that. I'll tell you, we do that all the time. I got a buddy, built a a church here locally. I won't tell you his name, um, just in case you're the guy that did this. But um, they were building their church. And uh, one of the guys in their church said, you know what, I've got a bunch of drywall for you, and, uh, and I'll donate it all to the church, all I want, I just want a, a letter from you saying that I donated it, so I can claim it on my taxes. He's like, yeah, no problem. Well, he, he brought all the drywall, but what they discovered when they went out to the stacks of drywall was it was all broken up. They were all the rejected pieces that he hadn't used on the jobs that he had done. And because they had damaged them, they couldn't return them. They were worthless. So what happened was, now the church is using this, and they don't know that. They're just trying to do the the work. Here's what my buddy tells me. He says, you know, we ended up using this drywall. We spent more money taping and patching all of the, the breaks in the drywall than than if we would have just used brand new drywall in the first place. There's a lesson learned, man. Now, they didn't know it and realize it until they're, they're, you know, in the middle of it, and they didn't realize for all the, you know, they're they're thinking, well, okay, a little extra work, but, you know, it's going to save us money. No, it was a loser. All the way around, it was a loser. Now, why did the guy do that? For a buck. He did it to get ahead. He certainly didn't do it because he loved the Lord. Now, now, you know, maybe that's a little extreme. Maybe he thought he was doing it. But here's the thing. The guy was a professional contractor. He knew. He wasn't using it on his jobs. He knew what it was going to take to tape and to texture all that or to patch all of that. 
And, 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 you know, this is just one example, but there's all kinds of things for us. And I'm just praying, you know, the Holy Spirit just sort of does his work here. But we need to really take a walk with how many times is my attitude like, ugh, I'll give that to God. So God's saying, look, why would you give me what you would never give someone else that you respect? That's disrespectful. Now, to further make his point, what God says here is he, he contrasts what they're doing to how they pay taxes, you know, offer that to your governor. Would he be pleased with it? Well, here's the idea. Remember, the Israelites, they, they were in bondage in Babylon. And Babylon at this time had been taken over by the Persians. And so King Cyrus had, had the he's Persian king. He's the one that had let them go. And all that mattered to him, he was like, yeah, you can go back. You can go back to your, to, to your land. Just make sure you pay your taxes. That's all he cared about. As the Lord is saying to them, you know, what would happen... If when your tax bill came, you, you sent, you know, the king a fraction of what you were supposed to give him, or you sent him an IOU, hey, you might want to hang on to that. That's, gonna, that's kind of costly little, here you go, I'll give you an IOU, I'm good for it. He's like, how do you think that would go over? I mean, I remember years ago, I, I, got, I did my taxes, and I, and I owed, and I was, I was like, oh, man, and I didn't have the money right then to pay it, so what I did to pay the whole thing I sent my forms in, I sent my tax return in, and I just sent a check. Now, I, I figured, well, you know, over three months, I can make the full payment, and yeah, there'll be some penalties, and they'll send me, you know, a bill on this, and, and so, so that's what I did. Do you, I mean, it was like three weeks later, I got a letter from the IRS basically telling me, you better pay us every single day. It was a threatening letter, man. I'm like, wow, you wasted no time right there. You know, every other year, you hang on to my money all year long, and then I wait weeks and weeks and months for, the, for you to pay me back what I've paid over. But man, two weeks later, you're going to send me, and it was only a few hundred bucks, whatever it was. I thought, good gravy. Now, you try that, and this is what God is saying. Hey, try that with your governor. You try paying your taxes like that. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, look, you're treating me in a way that you don't treat others. You're taking advantage of my kindness, and that's not right. That's what God's saying. And so, again, he basically says, look, if that's how it's going to be, let's just shut the doors and go home. Let's just call it quits. I mean, I'm not going to have this, you giving me your leftovers kind of thing. I'll be first, I'll be worshipped, or let's just call the whole thing off. God's not playing around. Now, with that being said, here's some questions that we need to consider. Here's the first question. Would God say that your life is honoring to him? Would God say that your life is honoring to him? That your time is spent with him? That your talents are, are, are used to serve him? That your treasure is, is used as an offering to him? Would God say that? There's a, a commercial that, and it's a series of commercials that the... Um, suburban auto group in Pittsburgh put together that's just a local series of, uh, of commercials and it's, it's, the, it's called uh, the trunk monkey google it, you're welcome okay um, but, but, it, but here's the thing basically they're saying the premise is you buy a car from us it's going to come equipped with a trunk monkey 
And there's a little button, it's kind of like the OnStar button, you know, you press this trunk monkey button, and the trunk monkey comes out for whatever ails you. Now, it obviously isn't true, but it's a catchy, gimmicky thing to have you think about the Suburban Auto Group, and I'm sure their sales went up through the roof, marketing something that didn't exist. Um, but it's this tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, and so on this one particular commercial, you know, there's, you have this, this wimpy kind of guy, and he's in his car, and there's a biker at his window screaming at him, and he's got, you know, chain in his hand and he's yelling at him total road rage kind of thing come on get out of the car you know and there he is and the guy and the guy's just sort of you know he hits the trunk monkey button and all of a sudden you see this monkey in his trunk just sort of reading and it's an actual monkey it's totally cool he's sitting there reading this this article and all of a sudden the alarm goes off he opens the trunk he comes out with a tire iron hits the guy over the head (laughs) and the guy looks out he rolls down his window and he says to the monkey get back in the trunk You know, just kind of like that. Now, why do I say that? Well, because a lot of us treat God like he's our trunk monkey, you know? And the the attitude is, uh, you know, just stay in the trunk. If I need you, I'll call you. And then when it's all over, I'll tell you, get back in the trunk. And, and a lot of us, that's our attitude. That's, that's our idea. That's, that's where we, you know, we, we treat God. Hey, listen, does that honor God when I treat him like that? Here's a thought. Second question. What are you offering to God? What is it that you are offering to God? I'll tag a third question on there. It's a companion to it. Here's this. Would God say that what you're offering is acceptable? You know, you, you might, you know, these, these, these Israelites, they would say, oh, well, look, we offered, I offered this and I offered that and I offered this. And, and God would say, oh, you mean the, the blind one and the lame one and the sick one? Those, those, are those the offerings? And so the idea for us is we have to take a walk with what am I offering to God and, hey, is, is, it, is it acceptable to God? Here's God's question in verse 8. He says, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not, what's the word? Evil. When you offer the lame and sick, is it not Evil. Says it twice. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, listen, when you offer something that's sick and that's lame and that's just this rotten kind of thing, when you offer it to me, look, you're not being cheap. You're being evil. That's some serious words. See, listen, God looks at the heart. You know, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks And it's out of the overflow of our hearts that our wallets give. And and so the thing is, is that God looks at our heart. It's not the amount of money that you're putting in as an offering to God. It's, It's why you're giving an offering to God. And so the idea here is that God looks at the heart. Now, as we consider this and explore this, turn to to Mark chapter 14. Pick it up in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, After two days it was the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. 
And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, Jesus Christ, by trickery and put him to death. Now, this is days before Jesus' death. Verse 2, but they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But, verse 4, there were some who were indignant among themselves, and they said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii, that's over a year's wages, by the way, uh, and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. But Jesus, now by the way, the Bible is not given to to understatement. When when it says they criticized her sharply, it means they really took this gal to task. They completely berated her and belittled her. But, verse 6, Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do good to them. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, we've all heard the saying, there's three types of people in the world. There's those that make things happen, there's those that watch things happen, and there's those who ask what happened, right? And this story has all three components. We've got people making things happen, people walking, watching things happen, and we've got the group sitting around going, what happened? Now, the religious leaders, they're always the guys that seem to be asking what happened, right? Jesus heals a blind guy. What happened here? You know, Jesus heals a leper. What, what, what happened? What's going on? You know, kind of thing. They're always, they're always not happy. They're always looking to see. No celebration. Only, hey, what happened? They don't have a clue. They don't want a clue. All they want to know is they want Jesus dead. That's, where, that's what we see there. Now, the other group, we see the disciples. These are guys that are usually watching things happen, right? And, and so there they are. They're, that's the role we see them in here. They're watching things happen. And, and, and Jesus is, is telling these guys, listen, I'm going to the cross, and, and they're just not getting the memo. They don't get it. They don't understand it. Uh, it's not sinking in. They love Jesus. They're just a little slow, all right? That's, that's the other group. Now, the, the star here is this unnamed woman. Now, she's the one that makes things happen. And, and so for this woman, spiritually, what happens, according to Jesus, she's just a gal who simply did what she could. Let's just let that sink in. She just did what she could. What, what can you do? See, she just did what she could. She's able to hear and understand Jesus, even when everybody else couldn't. And she was able to act on her faith, even at great personal cost and sacrifice. Now, what was it that enabled this woman to be so sacrificial, such a sacrificial servant of Christ? And how can we be those kind of Christians? That's my question. We get a lot of, of insight here from John's gospel. I won't have you turn there, but basically he tells the same story. And in his story, what we learn is that this woman was, was Mary, Lazarus' sister. And in Jesus' day, the idea is there, there was no Bank of America. 
You know, and so if you wanted to, to invest your money, one of the ways they invested their money is they would buy these perfumes, these, these expensive spikenards, and, and they would store them. And, and so, you know, some of the, the perfumes were ridiculously expensive, like this one, which is worth over a year's wages, which, by the way, that's very telling. See, because what happens is it, it suggests to us that, that, you know, as being ide- identified as being, you know, over a year's wages and being spikenard, uh, that tells us that it was most likely a family heirloom passed down from family member to family member. And many commentators believe what this was, in fact, it was given from Mary's mother to her as her dowry. Now, in this day and age, and what would happen is the common practice in the culture was that you, as a, as a parent, as a father, as a mother, you would put together a dowry for your daughter. And so when you had a, a man who was seeking to marry her, part of the deal, part of the package was he got a dowry. He got some money to help start the family, to help things, you know, get going. Brenda's dad, you know, when we were getting married, he said, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I can pay for a wedding or I can give you money for a down payment on a house. And I'm thinking, let's have the down payment on the house. And Brenda's like, I waited this my whole life for my wedding. We're ha- I'm having a wedding. And we had a wedding. And I'm glad, actually. <laughs> house came later. But actually, I, I actually was glad. Even in the moment, I was glad. We had our wedding, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was, it was just, it was wonderful. And, um, you know, now, this, the idea is this dowry. Now, my, my son's in-law, they got a reverse dowry. Brenda and I joke, because when my girls went to school, I'm like, look, I'll pay, for your, I'll pay for half your college education, I'll pay for the second half, and I'll only pay for it when you give me the diploma that you graduated. Otherwise, it's yours. Well, <laughs> they got their MRS degree uh, instead of their bachelor's degree, both of them. And so when they got married and dropped out of school, I told their husbands, guess what you get? <laughs> this one comes with $20,000 in debt, and this one comes with $30,000 of debt. There you go. So I gave a reverse dowry. <laughs> got to use your head. Got to be thinking. So mark that one down. Pay for the second half of their college education when they get their degree. Anyway, so, so this is probably Mary's dowry. Think about it. This is, this is a big deal, Right? I mean, here's the thing. Not only is this an act of worship, not only is it a year's wages in terms of value, this is her entire future that she poured out on Jesus Christ. She said, Lord, you mean everything to me. Now listen, if you were going to anoint someone, the custom was you just put one or two drops on. She poured the entire bottle out on Jesus. We just finish there and just take a walk with that. But, but listen, the real story isn't her sacrifice. It's, what's, it's what prepared her to make the sacrifice. What, what was it that prepared Mary to make that sacrifice? Well, if you'll remember in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, you read the story about Mary and Martha. And Jesus is there and Martha comes to him and she's all complaining and capping on her sister. There's all this work to do and, and Mary won't help me. Mary is doing what? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And here's the thing, because Mary spent time with Jesus, sitting at his feet, she was the only one in this whole room full of his disciples, now in Bethany. She's the only, only one in, in, in everyone there who understood what Jesus was saying to everybody, 
who understood the, the importance of this moment that he was going to be crucified. And so she anointed his body for burial, appropriately so, rightly so. Here's her attitude. Because she had spent time with the Lord, because she knew the Lord, because she was intimately related with the Lord and connected with the Lord, she could say, listen, my master is sacrificing for me. I'm going to sacrifice for my master. And nobody else got it. But there were some, if you notice in verse 4, who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Now, John's gospel, again, sheds light on this story and tells us what was going on here. And if you remember, here's what's happening. The one who figured out the value of the spikenard and the one who started complaining that it could be used for the poor and the one that rallied everybody else and got this whole posse of people together to complain, it was none other than Judas. Judas is the one, according to John, who was the ringleader of this group. And so he gathers together this posse to, to, to complain about this, what this gal is doing. Now, just I, I do a whole message on this. I'll just give you one sentence on this, and it's, and it's just a PS, or by the way, and it's worthy of mentioning, beware of people that want to gather a posse together to complain about something. God is doing a, a, a wonderful work in and through this, the, 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 this girl, Mary. Beware. So John tells a story, and he basically tells us that Judas did all of these things not because he cared about the poor. That's the excuse that he used. John tells us he did it not because he cared about the poor, but because he used to steal from the money box. Here's the scripture. I'll put it on the screen for you, John 12, 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Now, notice Judas's main complaint at the end of verse 4. He says, why was this wasted? Now, that word wasted, it's an interesting thing. Jesus used the exact same word two days later. In John 17, 12, Here's, I'll put that scripture up. Here's what he said. He's talking to the Father, high priestly prayer. He says, while I was with them in the world, he's talking to his disciples, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them have lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. That son of perdition, that word perdition, it's the exact same word. It means wasted. That's what it means. And see, here's what happened. In, in, we're reading the story in, in Mark and, you know, Judas is saying, oh, this was a huge waste. And, and Jesus immediately comes to the woman's defense and says, get off her, man, step back. Because what she's, do, what she's done is awesome. Notice the very next thing that happens in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, we're in John four, or Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. He went there at that point. That's when he went and brokered the deal. He's like, are you kidding? I'm out at this point. And so here it is now, two days later, Jesus looking at this whole thing, and basically what he says is, you know what? You think what she did is a waste? I think your life is a waste. That's what Jesus is saying. You wasted your life. You're all about the money for you and what you could get for you. 
And you put so much thought and effort and attention into what you could get for yourself. How much can I betray Jesus for? How much money will you give me if I betray Jesus? And she put all of her thought and she put all of her effort in saying, how can I worship Jesus? How can I bring glory and honor to the Lord? Two questions to consider this week as we close. Am I guilty of giving God my sin, but not my time, my talent, my treasure? And secondly, is my attitude toward giving more like Judas, or is it more like Mary? As you consider that second question, consider this. Judas saved his money only to use it later to buy the rope that he hanged himself with and the plot of ground in which his body decayed. Wasn't even buried, just rotted there. That's where his money went. Mary's money went to anoint the Lord Jesus Christ.